Welcome wherever you are. I'm your host, Greg McEwen. I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Essentialism and Effortless. And I'm here with you on this journey to see how we can operate at a higher contribution. What is one problem you are dealing with in your business right now? What is one problem you are dealing with in your life right now? Well, whatever problems you're facing, this conversation with Jeremy Utley is the answer. Because as he says in his new book, Idea Flow, every problem is an ideas problem. Today, I've invited my friend Jeremy to talk about his research, his insights, developed over many years at the D School, the design school at Stanford University. He and I co-created a class there designing life essentially. And now I'm thrilled to be able to explore these new insights that he's put together to your benefit. By the end of this episode, you will have in effect the solution to every problem. So let's begin. If you want to learn these ideas about ideation faster, understand them more deeply, increase your influence with others, teach at least one idea about these ideas to someone else within the next 24 to 48 hours. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jeremy Utley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here. We have been friends now a long time. This is years and years. Where we're I mean, 10 years, close to 10 a decade, years. I think. Yeah. Decade of work. Tell us, for those that don't know you as well as I do, give them a you know, two-minute Reader's Digest version of who you are. Awesome. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm currently the Director of Executive Education at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, or the D School at Stanford, where I lead our work with organizations. Um, I'm a recovering MBA, which means I'm a spreadsheet <laughs> junkie. I was a former management consultant. And now I advise CEOs and senior leadership teams around the world in, in innovation strategy, how to implement this stuff that we call design thinking at the D School. And the way I got here was I was derailed actually by the D school myself as a student at Stanford. I had the good fortune of spending a summer in Delhi, India, working at a startup that unbeknownst to me, it actually originated at the D school. And I, I expressed enough curiosity about how they, they made things that they started telling me, you know, you're kind of D schooly. You should go back to the D school whenever you're in your second year. They were right. And they were right about that. Weren't they? You are. They were. They were right. I didn't know what it meant. I took it as an insult. I've come to see it as a compliment. <laughs> but, you know, I came back to Stanford, my second year of business school. I thought I was going back to my, you know, strategy consulting job. And I spent a bunch of my elective units studying design and I just got hooked. And I, I had experienced a handful of epiphany moments that really changed what I thought about work and what I thought about what I wanted to do. And, you know, 13 years later, I'm still doing it. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And this is reminding me uh, that for those people that know that I co-designed uh, a pop-up class at the D School, it was with you. That's right. Listening that, that, that don't know that, and that was that was the that was the most popular pop-up class of the of the season. In fact, if I remember right, but absolutely, it was an honor to be able to teach that with you. And uh, and and now you have written a book called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters, which is an awfully good subtitle. Share with us a story, something, a case study that helps us understand you know, why this matters so much to you and why you think this should matter to CEOs and people who want to be the CEO of their own life. Okay, so I'm going to do this in two parts, if you will, if you'll indulge me. One mm. is very personal, and then the other is more of kind of, you know, the academic thing. Yeah. The personal thing, just because I think it's useful. Why does this matter to me? You know, like they used to say, men's hair club. I'm not only the president, I'm also a member. The reason <laughs> this matters to me is like, I need it. So just by way of personal example, I'm in the car the other day. I'm driving, uh, running errands for my family, and I've got somehow I ended up with, you know, the 3D jigsaw puzzle of Jenga blocks in my car trying to fit everything in. And for some reason, I stacked the 40 pound cooler in the passenger seat precariously balanced to basically damage my rotator cuff with every right hand turn. <laughs> so 
I'm I'm just enduring this pain. And it's like, I know I'm going to be in the car for an hour. This is a serious, legitimately pain-inducing experience. And I'm trying to kind of wedge my sh- my elbow up so that I can give myself some relief so that the momentum, at least, of the thing doesn't slam me so much. And my brother calls. My brother's a construction worker. He does roofing in Texas. And he and I are catching up, just, you know, lighthearted. And uh, after about five minutes, he, he, as only a little brother can, he goes, Hey, uh, why do you keep grunting? <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, man. I've got this stupid cooler it keeps slamming into my shoulder every time I turn right, you know? And he goes, well, have you buckled it in? And it was this moment of, I mean, I, I, I can't explain to you except to say like, it's like, you know, bang your forehead kind of moment. And he's, you know, of course, almost starts apologizing. He's like, I mean, you know, that's what I do when I'm in my truck and I got a bunch of gear in there and I'll just buckle it in. He's like apologizing for saying the obvious thing. And I was like, Zach. And in one minute, I mean, I, I stopped the car, I buckled the cooler in and in 10 seconds, the problem that I had resigned myself to be stuck with for an hour was solved. And the reason I share that story is, I'm the problem-solving guru. I'm the innovation and creativity expert. And yet I find there are consistently problems in my life I don't even identify as problems in need of a creative solution. And to me, just that metacognitive moment of zooming out and realizing there's a whole chapter in our book on seeking unexpected perspectives and the value of that in driving creative thinking, right? You know who has a really valuable perspective in the moment that I'm feeling pain because of a jostling Jenga brick of a cooler is a construction worker who deals with that stuff all the time, right? If I had framed the problem, I would have thought of how to solve it. The problem I experience, the problem a lot of us experience is we don't even realize it when we got an idea problem. And that's what we call that in the book is every problem is an idea problem, meaning Mm -hmm. what it yields to is solutions. Say that again, because it's such an important point. Every problem is an idea problem. Every problem is an idea problem. That that's, that's a really important paradigm for the justification of writing this book and for the discipline behind it is that if you have a problem in your life, if a person listening to this has a problem with a colleague, has a problem with their board, has a problem with their top executive team, if they have a problem with their partner, with their spouse, with their child, with the school, with the everything everything is an idea problem and so i genuinely believe it yeah it like all of a sudden there's a question like what does that mean really what it, and that which leads me kind of to my second story i told you i warned you i wanted to tell you two stories yes now for the more you know empirical or academic story of nature starting with a personal note which is i need this just like every other reader does what do we mean when we say every problem is an idea problem what we mean is Problems yield to solutions. And perhaps the most unexpected finding of lots of research is that the biggest factor that impacts the quality of a solution you identify is actually the quantity of solutions you identify. So when we say, and every problem is an idea problem, what we mean is come up with a bunch of solutions. And as an example, there's this great story, this professor of photography at the University of Florida, his name is Jerry Gulsman. He's a famous photographer and he teaches his photography class. And this is an experiment he's run on a number of occasions where he basically divides the class in half. Tells the whole class, at the end of the semester, you're going to be judged by a jury of professional photographers and they're going to rate the 
quality of your work. To one half of the class, he tells them, your job is to make one spectacular photo. And to get an A, it's got to be truly spectacular. To get a B, it's got to be very good. To get a C, it's got to be pretty good, et cetera, et cetera. And then the jury will evaluate. To the other half of the class, he says, you're actually not going to deal with the jury. I'm just going to count the number of photographs you submit. If you submit over 100, doesn't matter how bad they are, you get an A. If you submit over 90, doesn't matter how bad they are, you get a B, and so on. And at the end of the course, he brings in this jury. He shows the jury all the photographs, both, both groups. And what astounded him and what astounded the jury is none of the A caliber photographs were submitted by the students whose prompt was submit a spectacular photograph. That's amazing. So interesting. All of the A caliber photographs were taken by students who said the quality doesn't matter. Just focus on how many photographs you take. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect illustration. I mean, Dr. Dean Keith Simonton has confirmed this in loads of fields beyond photography from science and invention and the arts and discovery, et cetera. The single greatest variable at your disposal or lever, you could say, if you're trying to get a good idea, as Linus Pauling once said, you need to have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. And so when we say every idea is an, every, sorry, every problem is an idea problem, what we mean is you're fundamentally dealing with a quantity problem. Are you thinking about generating lots? And where going back to my car, I wasn't even thinking about generating any. <laughs> and for sure, I'm not going to experience a life-changing solution if I'm not even thinking that there's a problem I could solve, let alone that that this that the answer actually lies in coming up with lots of answers. Yes, and it seems to me that the more you do this, the more that you exercise that mental muscle, the better you are at generating ideas and solutions in yes. any situation. Yes. In fact, I just was talking to Dr. Benjamin Hardy, uh, like literally earlier on today, and he shared with me this idea of this of high hope people versus low hope people. Mm. And the difference in the research is that high hope people feel there's a better, more likely chance of them reaching their goals, their success, because they have a sense of the necessary pathways to doing it. And Mm. it's the pathway, it's like, it's all to do with how many pathways you can see to achieving an objective. Low hope people, maybe they see one pathway or none. So of course they feel frustrated and and, and it's not possible. Whereas in a high Mm. hope person, it's like, look, there's 50 different ways. I don't know which ones are going to work or even if these will work, but there's 50 and we can generate another 50 after that. Go ahead. Well, you're, you're hinting at something that's actually really important, Greg, which is expectation matters. So there's a famous study, it's called the creative cliff illusion, and the illusion is the important word there. But what what these authors of this study have empirically demonstrated is most people's expectation of their creativity is that, that it will experience a cliff. It will precipitously decline after some period of time. And what they've studied and proven is that's actually not true. There's no such thing as a creative cliff. And in fact, there's a possibility of a creative ramp. So if you think about time on the x-axis and and quality of ideas on the y-axis, you, most people expect there to be a cliff, meaning over time, the quality of ideas goes to zero. Hmm. The truth is it's more of like a plateau and the quality of your ideas persists for much longer than you expect. But the most fascinating part of the study to me and the part that that is related to exactly what you were just saying is for the people who had the expectation that they would have good ideas later, all of their ideas were better. 
for the people who had the expectation that their good ideas would probably come early, all of their ideas were worse. Hmm. And it's a fascinating implication to realize if you have this expectation, better ideas are going to come. You know, we can, we can keep coming up with stuff. And to me, it's intimately related to this idea of hope. This is another conversation, but I just had another conversation uh, with the, uh, the author of a new book called Live Life in Crescendo. It's mm. co-authored with her uh, late father, Stephen Covey. And, and that's in the, that seems consistent with this idea, not live life in crescendo, but come up with creative ideas in crescendo. Right. Solve problems in crescendo. Solve exactly. problems in crescendo. Well, and that, and that, not to just be too nerdy here, but I mean, as a couple of professors, we can just talk nerdy to one another. <laughs> but, you know, to me, I, there's a cognitive bias known as the Einstelling effect. And by the way, it's the exact opposite of the crescendo. But basically, this you know, researcher in the 1940s, Abraham Luchens, coined this term, the Einstelling effect. And I like to refer to it as the anti-Einstein effect because of mm. its phonetic resemblance to a certain breakthrough thinker. Mm. But what the what Luchens and others, Carl Dunker, many others have identified various facets of this, but it's the tendency for a human being, once they identify a solution, not only do they stop looking for other solutions, that'd be bad enough, but even worse, and this was confirmed by researchers at Oxford more recently studying novice and expert chess players, who they discovered that once a player found a solution, they were incapable of seeing a better solution, mm. which is exactly the opposite of crescendo, right? And once you become aware of this cognitive bias, I have this bias. My brain has this bias that once I have a solution, my tendency is to glom onto it. Um, and hold on to it and justify why it's the best thing. That That's kind of, it's like admission is the first step of recovery. It's something like that. Once you become mm -hmm. aware of the bias, you can start to short circuit it. And there are really simple hacks to short circuit that bias. But I love this idea of crescendo. And I would say we rarely, in many of the problems we face in our lives, we rarely think in terms of crescendo. We think in terms of almost a task orientation. How quickly can I get this out of the way? Oh, there's so much to to unpack there. When you say that there are some practical things you can do to overcome this bias, what are some of those practical things? Well, the most simple thing that we have people do is what we call an idea quota. And an idea quota is simply once a day, take a problem that you've been trying to find the right answer for and emphasis right there on the and ordinarily, that could be almost any problem. If you become aware of it, you realize in every situation, I'm looking for the answer. And once a day, typically, you know, usually earlier, the better. But once a day, you flip your orientation from quality, i.e. the right answer, to quantity, mm -hmm. 10 possible answers. Mm -hmm. And doing an idea quota is a really great way to short circuit that bias. Just like, you know, I'm friends with John Cassidy who founded Klutz Press, which is the, you know, Klutz Guide to Juggling, for example. <laughs> the whole first chapter of the Klutz Guide to Juggling, you know what it is? I've, I've read this. I've read okay. the book when so I was tell a kid. Us. Well, you know the first chapter. The first chapter is like you literally throw the ball up and let it drop on the ground. <laughs> Exactly. And you do it 50 times. I don't remember the number of times I was like a 10 year old when I first read this, but like you literally, it's a sort of ridiculous first it's chapter, awesome. but you, you don't awesome. try to catch it. You let it drop 50 exactly. times. You let this drop, drop, drop. You aren't to do it. And you think, what is this guy asking me to do? But go ahead. He, he's desensitizing you. 
Yeah. Nothing, nothing happens when the ball hits the ground. How can you possibly <laughs> learn to juggle if you're afraid of the ball hitting the ground, right? And, the, and part of the fascinating virtue and value of an idea quota is the realization that nothing happens if I write down a bad idea. Nothing. Mm. And what happens, though, when we start allowing ourselves to write down bad ideas is we effectively, cognitively, are increasing the variation of possibility. By writing down bad ideas, I also, by that same kind of mode, if you think about a normal distribution, or if you think about the mean, if, if there's a mean or a median of idea quality, the only way to get to you know two standard deviations to the right is to be willing to go two standard deviations to the left. Otherwise, you never achieve the mean, right? And everybody wants to go two standard deviations to the right. They want to be a genius. And they're, if you're sitting down, I mean, the other day, I was talking about the idea quota with an executive at a Japanese pharmaceutical company. And I was asking this small group, how many ideas did you do in your idea quota? We were saying you got to do at least 10. Most people were 10, 20, 15, whatever, right? And this one guy, Tony, goes three. I said, Tony, that's not the rules. I mean, you, you have to do at least 10. And he said, no, I did 10, but I only had three good ideas. <laughs> and I said, Tony, you have to count the bad ideas too, right? <laughs> but it's this tendency we go, I don't even count the bad ideas, right? And I think going back to the klutz metaphor, the notion with an idea quota is the cost of a bad idea is exceptionally low, but the benefit of allowing your brains, the variation and the kinds of outputs you entertain is enormously high. I love this idea. In my head, I already have a very specific problem that I would like to uh, improve and I've added it to my, I have like this, uh, it's a project turnaround plan that I have and I have daily, weekly, monthly tasks, not tasks, routines, things I want to do on those, um, you know, at that rate. And I've added it as my daily activity to run an idea quota 10, you know, so-called bad ideas a day in order to be able to solve this problem. I think that's a, that's a great thing to be able to build into uh, a system for being able to continually search for ideas that eventually by simply this process of uh, increased options uh, will deliver something, eventually an outlier, something that is exceptional. And it reminds me, this idea of a daily routine around an idea quota reminds me of uh, Johnny Ive describing when he was talking at a funeral service that they held at Apple for the late Steve Jobs, what it was like to work with him. And that they met every day, which itself is insightful, that the CEO right. and the head of design are meeting every day. And what they're doing, they didn't use the term you're using, but they are producing an idea quota. And the, because he's, Yeah, he's saying, we just went through idea after day. What about this? What, what, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did this? And he said, almost all those ideas, you know, they just didn't do anything. He says, then once in a while, we would say something and it would take the air out of the room. Mm. And we'd be like, oh, that's something. That's something. Wow, that's great. And so when, when Steve Jobs says, you know, out of every, does it 99 or 999? I don't remember. Out of, out of every thousand ideas, you know, 999 of them, we say no to in order to say yes to the one. 
right? Yes. Now, yes. now, everybody who quotes that, including me, is quoting that to make the point that you have to be really selective. You have to find the right <laughs> idea. Everyone's saying that. Yes. They're yeah. missing the other really important <laughs> part of that Do you have quote. a thousand ideas Do you have a thousand <laughs> ideas because if totally. you don't you can't find the one the key isn't just pick the one right if everyone could just pick the one they'd well great i mean we'd right. all do that it's the willingness to have an environment that is capable and a routine around uh the idea creation that seems right. to be part of that part of that process I absolutely agree. I love that. It's it is such a um, it's such an important thing to realize. The only way you earn the right to choose the one is by doing the work of generating the thousand. And what most people want to do is they go, you know what? I got ten good options. And I mean, as an as an example, I realize I cut myself off, but it's purposeful. We happen to know quantitatively how many ideas you need to get to a commercially viable idea. If you want to define that as success, that's great. Um, and I'll tell you the number in a second, <laughs> but as a, as a parlor trick, oftentimes what we'll do, you know, and we did this recently, one of the world's largest consulting firms had a global meeting of senior partners. There's three or 400 people in the rooms, all seated at these kind of eight top banquet tables. And we said, we gave the Linus Pauling quote to have a good idea. You need to have a lot of ideas. And we said, what's a lot? You know, we all get that you need to have a lot of ideas, but let's define a lot. And we said, just so there's some skin in the game, winning tables, they're all going to get Bose headphones. Okay. And I tried to drop that phrase, Bose headphones, enough times that the event organizers knew I wanted some and they gave me some. So that was great. <laughs> um, that's a true story. Yeah, um, I love it. But so we had all of these tables, you know, eight tops conferring to decide how many ideas does it take to get to a good idea? And then we went around the room and the mode, you know, there's 20 or 30 tables in there. The mode was probably 20, I would say on average. Um, you know, some people were a hundred, some people were five, you know, ex with the exception, by the way, of the chairman, the chairman of the board sitting at the front and center table in the middle. And he stands up boldly and he, and he just proudly proclaims one, you need one good idea. And, you know, you talk about taking the air <laughs> out of the room, you know, my next slide is of course showing the data, which suggests it's more like 2000 to get to one good idea. <laughs> and it's kind of an embarrassing moment. You don't want to belabor the point, but the, the simple point is people, they dramatically underestimate, not by a little bit, but by orders of magnitude, they underestimate how many ideas they need to have to get to a good one. And so going back to the Steve Jobs thing, it's easy for people to go, yeah, he chose, he eliminated, he said no to 999 things. But what, what precedes saying no <laughs> is coming up with the 999 things. Yeah, I've just, I've just, found the quote, right? So here, here here he says, people think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that are there. Uh, you have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things that I have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things, mm. right? Mm. But, so there it is. You're saying that, 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 you know, that technically it's actually 2000 things, but but we're actually in the range yes. of uh, being a literal thing. And, yes. and I think it's quite profound because I literally have never heard anybody talk about this idea from Steve. Uh, it's it's the, fascinating. In the way we are right now talking about it. Like, no, that, and, and mileage, mileage, go. 
Well, I was just going to say mileage may vary a little bit. You know, in pharmaceutical discovery, it's more like 10,000 compounds get tested to get to one, you know, viable Alzheimer's drug, for example, right? Um, if you think about James Dyson making the bagless vacuum, he made 5,000 prototypes. If you think about SNL, you know, as a hit making machine, right? They got tons of viral videos, but how many times do you turn off SNL because it's so bad you can't stand it? And that's the good stuff after quote unquote good stuff after they spend a week of eliminating all the bad stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So point being, this is true in the Taco Bell food lab. I read an interview with the person who runs the Taco Bell food lab. She said she bet she tested 2,000, I kid you not, she used that number, 2,000 different versions of the Doritos Locos taco shell, okay? Mm. But the point is, the phenomenon, as you start to look for it, it's kind of everywhere, but nobody acknowledges. We. It's really, I mean, as, as you've pointed out with essentialism, wisely and rightly so, saying no is critical. It's essential, not to bad pun, but the thing that most people don't realize is you have to have stuff to say no to when it comes to problem solving. The first pillar of essentialism is explore. Mm. <laughs> it's not eliminate. Explore is number one. Eliminate okay. is number two. And execute is number three. There's a there's a process there, an, an ongoing, continual process. If you don't if you don't get the balance right between exploration and elimination, then then you don't get the the dynamic equilibrium you need to be able to actually produce momentum. And mm-hmm. so it's two sides of a sort of yin and yang innovation, uh, you know, relationship here. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yes, Absolutely. highly selective through through the options, but you've got to have the ideas going forward. I, I have another interesting story related to this. I'd love your reaction to it. I once went to uh, a camp. I'd been invited to speak um, at Steve Harvey's camp for sort of an underprivileged young men and their single mothers. Okay. Wow. So that's oh, cool. that's the environment. One of the things that's interesting about that, right? So 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 Steve who we normally see on television, family feud, uh, you know, it is in a certain kind of role is in a completely different mode there. He's in sort of almost army clothes, boots, he, it, and he's just also completely relaxed. Just like no cameras on, no one. And so he just riffs and he just goes and he just talks about what he really wants to do in his life and what he's really learned. And he's just very raw about it. And one of the things he said, he said, listen, I'm going to tell you all right now what the problem is. The problem for everybody here is that you're not asking for enough from your life. You've got a a few things you want. There's a few things you want that you don't have and you think, okay, well, I'll just work on those things. He said, here's the challenge. He says, you go home. I want you to write down 400 things that you want. Wow. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go home. You're going to start doing this and you're going to get to like number 45 and you are done. You have no idea what you'd want beyond those things. He said, so you have to push yourself beyond that. You've got to get to 50, 60, 100, and you just keep on going. And it's not a commitment list. You don't have to do everything on this list, but you right. have to push yourself beyond the thinking you've had before about what you would like from life, what you'd like to achieve. And, and I went home and I started doing this. And I'm telling you, I got to like 65 and they were major things. So it's not wow. like there wasn't a lot represented, but hmm. that was it. 
And, wow. and I have since continued to try to add to it for the same, I think, basic logic here, right? So if life is the big problem to solve, <laughs> yeah. then we have yeah. to generate a lot of ideas of what to do with it, what we'd really ideally love to do with it if we want to find one idea that really names it for us. You know, how many people have I talked to that say, I say, what do you want? And they don't know what they want. And I think, well, yeah, what I need to say is, okay, write down anything right, that you could exactly. possibly want and just make the longest list possible. And then you see, you get to 400. By the time you're there, you found something that you go, wow, that, that I really want that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think part of the challenge is the more significant the task or the or the moment, the more we tend to clam up and put our blinders on and really narrow our focus. And we lose sight of the fact, and that's kind of the beauty of a daily idea quota, is it's a regular recurring opportunity. I mean, worst case scenario, you build the muscle. Best case scenario, you solve the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an it's it's a it's a really great value proposition. But when it comes to these really significant moments, we think, well, I gotta have, I can't afford to have a bad answer here. And we 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 equate coming up with a bad answer with implementing a bad answer. Mm. And the two are very different. And being willing to entertain a bad answer may be just as informative, maybe even more enlightening. Well, why did I have such a visceral reaction to that one? That might be as enlightening as the one that I go, wow, I really resonated with that one. But we only get half the data we could get because we only entertain the good. Related to that is this problem that I see that people go from idea to execution with hardly a thought. Hmm. There's, there's nowhere for the ideas to go right. so that you can actually explore them, uh, add to them, create a portfolio from yeah. which to select something to right. invest in. They're already right. spending time and resources on the first idea that comes to them. And so it creates a very reactive, frenetic, frantic type of experience uh, in execution. But in this case, there's got to be some sort of process. I'm curious about your thoughts. So you generate your idea quota. What's the process after that? I do these 10 ideas a day. Now what? Yeah, well, I want to slightly riff on that for just a second before getting to the implementation question, because you're you're alluding to something that just sparked for me that I had kind of forgotten about actually till right now. But there's a really famous, one of the most famous studies of creativity was conducted by this World War II spy master named Donald McKinnon. And after the war, he kind of became obsessed with this question of practical creativity and how does it work? And what he did was he undertook a longitudinal study of architects because he felt they were the nice balance of aesthetics you know, and, and visual, you know, beauty consideration, et cetera. But then they had to deal with things like, you know, very practical things like gravity and seismic forces and such. And so what he did was he surveyed all living architects at the time and he asked them who are the most exemplary contributors to the field. And he got a short list and he went and spent time with each person there. He did kind of a day in the life, week in the life, month in the life, kind of uh, empathetic or yeah, kind of ethnographic 
immersion to understand their working habits. And then he went and did the same thing with people who weren't in that group. He didn't tell them that they weren't in that group. I, I don't think, I hope not. Hmm. Wouldn't be very spy masterly of him if he had, <laughs> but he, he studied and he basically contrasted the two groups. And there are a couple of fascinating findings that I think have implications on what you were just saying. One, just, just by way of like a teaser, which we could, you know, do in another episode later, he found that the most successful architects were far more likely to engage in play. Again, we don't have time to cover that right now. It's too deep of a topic. The other topic, though, that is relevant to this is he found that the most exceptional architects were far more likely to delay decisions than the uh, non-exceptional architects. And you can take it as an example, someone like Frank Lloyd Wright. He's a classic example of this. It's The rumor has it with Falling Water, which is probably the most you know famous architect residential architectural development of the 20th century, that he had been commissioned to do that, this, this development, and he had never approached the drafting table. And it, some time passed by, longer than I think most of his associates are probably comfortable with, without any meaningful work product being completed. And one day the client called and said, I'm on my way to the office. I want to see an update. I'll be there in two hours. And quickly, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright approached the drafting table, and he laid down the foundations of what became Falling Water. But what would he do? He would nap oftentimes multiple times per day. Okay. This, this kind of behavior is aberrant, you know, to the productivity oriented of us. It's, it's, it's really frustrating to people who say, I want my output and my sense of progress to map perfectly with time where, you know, at 10% of the way done, I want to have 10% of the answer. And at 20% of the way done, I want to be 20% of the way done and 30, et cetera, right? And what wildly creative and effective, I would say, creative is almost like uh, not the right word because people dismiss it. What the most effective breakthrough thinkers do is they recognize that this time for gestation is necessary, this time for marination. And what McKinnon discovered as he studied this phenomenon was that the most breakthrough architects open themselves up to new possibilities by not deciding. They uh, open themselves up to new sources of in inspiration, new possibilities, new ideas, and they ended up delivering better products because they deferred the tendency to make the decision as quickly as possible. And anyway, you, you reminded me of that anecdote when you were when you were speaking earlier about it's the natural tendency is just to, oh, what you were saying, come up with the idea and implement, come up with the idea, implement, right? And we want to just do this fast cycle. And what the research would seem to indicate is for things that matter, by the way, if it doesn't matter, procrastination is just a stalling tactic, right? But if it does matter, procrastination is almost this like your, your right brain tendency to trigger your subconscious and activate it into consideration. And, but it's only if you give yourself space to incubate, you know, very kind of simple model for creative thinking is a four stage model. That's basically stage one is preparation. Two is incubation. Three is illumination. And four is verification. That's a very well-established cognitive model, preparation, incubation, illumination, verification. I would submit that what those architects were doing is they were giving themselves time for incubation. And what we lack in our hyper-connective, hyper-efficiency-oriented, hyper-measurement-oriented, I mean, I'm aghast at some of the productivity measures I see among now white-collar workers and such. It's like, it's no wonder creativity is being snuffed out of the system. 
We aren't giving our brains any space to think or consider or incubate. And it's in that incubation period that the unexpected combinations start to take shape. And the unexpected combinations are actually by, you know, Arthur Kostler defined creativity as the collision as apparently unrelated frames of reference. And the apparently unrelated only collides when there's space for it to collide. My best friend in England, he was raised on a farm. And so he had an incubator where he was uh, for, for some eggs that he was hatching into little chicks. Mm. The incubator turned off in the middle of the process um, without anyone knowing. And as a result, I mean, I, I, I sound like I'm laughing, but I'm not. It's, they, they came out, uh, you know, they came out either they, they, they died or they were deformed. Like it didn't work because, you know, the incubation wow. period had not been invested in, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm making already a connection to the, to the point I'm making beyond the metaphor. But I think that's similar to this idea that if you jump too soon, commit too soon to a full implementation, then, then you maybe end up with, you know, poorly thought through ideas, the sort of broken chick kind of idea that, that, that I'm exploring here. Let's come back to the subtitle here. The only business metric that matters. Help me understand what precisely that business metric is. Well, the measure itself is very simply, how many solutions can you come up with to a problem in a given amount of time? And you can do, you can measure it simply by taking an email in your inbox so that you need to write and say, set a timer for two minutes and see how many subject lines you can come up with or how many opening lines you can come up with. So you can do it in kind of a superficial but useful way. Um, but I think a, a more relevant and, and ultimately robust way to think about it is over time, are you in the habit or the practice of generating lots of solutions, lots of potential problems to be solved and solutions to those problems on a regular basis? And the reason that we say it's the only business metric that matters is ideas are the future. Solutions are the future. You know, the number of problems we face, I mean, to go all the way back full circle to my you know, story of me sitting in the front seat, we're facing problems all the time. And the sales department or the HR department or the, you know, finance committee or the board, in all of those environments, there are metaphorically these coolers slamming against shoulders, damaging rotator cuffs. <laughs> and people go, what do we do? You know, and having a robust and rich ability and resilient ability to meet such problems with a divergent, open, non-precious, rapid mindset of ideation is the source of it's it's the way only way to solve tomorrow's problems. And the rate at which disruption is occurring now, I mean, in the it's well established, disruption is happening at, at a rate unprecedented in the modern economy, at least. The only way to survive is to continue to reinvent and continue to solve problems that, that aren't even on your radar yet. And so for us, the, the reason that we say it's the only business metric that matters is because I can guarantee if a business is not developing its ability to solve problems, it will cease to exist, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. Bar none. No, it doesn't matter how well received. I mean, look at Clubhouse. Great example, right? I mean, not to pick on Clubhouse, by the way. I never used the product. I mean, other than tried it a couple of times, but I've got 
I'm not shorting it or something, but you look at clubhouse, <laughs> it's like this like stratospheric success for a moment, right? And it used to be that a stratospheric success, you could ride it into the sunset for decades, right? Now it's like people are going, wait, what is that again? Or where did it go? And that's, to me, a great parable for the kinds of success that are experienced today. Unless you're prepared to continue to solve meaningful problems and identify better problems to solve and have better, more resilient, more robust ways of solving them, doesn't matter how relevant you are as an individual or as a business, you will face obsolescence quickly. Jeremy Utley, who tells us all this great truth Every problem is an ideas problem. So regardless of the challenge you're facing, if you're listening to this podcast right now, this book, by definition, must be the answer and has a, a terrific author at the head of it. I am I'm proud to introduce you to him. If you don't know him already, I think you'll love the book. I think you'll find that absolutely fascinating, helpful in trying to solve, among other things, the problem of the 10x dilemma. If you have, you want to achieve 10x results, you can't work 10 times harder. You're going to need lots of ideas to be able to bridge that gap, get to the next level without burning out. So this is a marvelous conversation. It's been great having you. Uh, Jeremy, thank you for taking the time to teach us. Greg, I'm thrilled. It's been a hoot to catch back up with you. I owe you so much in terms of my own learning as a teacher and as a leader. I've learned so much and continue to practice essentialism in my own life and also with my students. And what an honor to be on your podcast. I've got a free bonus chapter on the website. If folks who've listened today want to check it out, it's called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And it's a distillation of a bunch of research that didn't make it into the book, but it's amazing uh, tips and tricks of how those incredible breakthrough thinkers thought. So folks can check it out for free on the website, ideaflow.design. And hopefully they love the book as well. I can't wait for feedback. So what is one idea from this episode that you can share with someone else today? What is one thing that stood out to you? What's one insight that came to you Maybe it's not what I said or Jeremy said, but something else that you can share. And if you have found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people who write a review of this episode will receive free access to the Essentialism Academy. For more details, go to essentialism.com forward slash podcast promo. Remember to subscribe to this podcast while you're at all of this so that you can receive episodes every Tuesday and every Thursday using the new structure that we have committed to. So wherever you are listening to this today, whether you're out on your run, I see you there. Whether you're on a bike ride or driving to work or driving from work or picking somebody up or working in the garden, maybe you're cleaning up as you go. I just want to say one more time, thank you. Really, thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.